Now, into this life of Abraham, all right? We've been journeying through this. We're in our ninth week together in this. And let me just catch you up to speed in case you haven't been here. Abraham is this man. His name started out as Abram, and God called him. He's a pagan man. He's worshiping the moon gods, all right? He literally is not, like, God doesn't look at him and say, man, there's the guy who's pursuing me, loving me. I'm gonna choose him. But rather, he's just off doing his own thing. And God says, in my grace, I'm gonna pick him. I'm gonna make him into a great nation. I'm gonna give him all this land and he will be a blessing. Him and his family will be a blessing to everybody. There's just one issue. Him and his wife are unable to have children. His wife, Sarah, is barren, all right? And if you're thinking like, okay, well, maybe, you know, something will, will happen here. Abram is now, Abraham is basically 100 years old and his, his wife is approaching 90, all right? And as we'll read in the text in a moment, let's just say, I'm not a medical expert, but that generally isn't the age that people have kids, okay? Um, and so in this, we're gonna see, how is God gonna intervene? Like, how is this going to happen? Will Abraham and his wife Sarah believe the promises? And so I want you to get a Bible out. If you brought one, go to Genesis 18. There are Bibles in the pew backs. You can grab uh, one of those um, or get your phone out and go to cplife.church and you'll see a card there. You can click that says sermon notes. The text will be there as well as just some of the, the outline for today's message and you can follow along that way. Um, so what I want to do, this is a, a lengthy text. There's kind of two distinct parts. I want to read the first 15 verses, and then later on, I will read 16 to 33. But here are, here's God's word, Genesis chapter 18. It says this, the Lord appeared to Abraham at the oaks of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance of his tent during the heat of the day. And he looked up and he saw three men standing near him. And when he saw them, he ran from the entrance of the tent to meet them. He bowed to the ground and he said, my Lord, if I have found favor with you, please do not go on past your servant. Get a little wa let a little water be brought that you may wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. And I will bring a bit of bread so that you may strengthen yourselves. This is why you have passed your servant's way. Later you can continue on. Well, yes, they replied, do as you have said. So Abraham hurried into the tent and said to Sarah, quick, knead three measures of fine flour and make bread. Abraham ran to the herd and got a tender choice calf. He gave it to a young man who hurried to prepare it. Then Abraham took curds and milk as well as the calf that he had prepared and he set them before the men and he served them as they ate under the tree. Verse nine, where's your wife Sarah? They asked him. There in the tent, he answered. And the Lord said, I will certainly come back to you in about a year's time and your wife Sarah will have a son. And now Sarah was listening at the entrance of the tent behind him. And Abraham and Sarah were old and getting on in years. And Sarah had passed the age of childbearing. So she laughed to herself. After I am worn out and my Lord is old, will I have delight? But the Lord asked Abraham, why did Sarah laugh saying, can I really have a baby when I'm old? Is anything impossible for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will come back to you. And in about a year, she will have a son. And Sarah denied it and said, I did not laugh, she said, because she was afraid. But he replied, no, you did laugh. And so we've got these, this opening account. And we're going to look at the second part of this in a moment. But what I want us to see at this point in the story, that God is a God who shows up. I mean, the opening words of chapter 18, the Lord appeared. God comes in power. 
Now, let's, let's remember, though, too, timeline-wise, we're a couple decades in since God first called this man Abram, since he first made the initial promises. Not that Abraham was super young at that point, right? But he was, this was, I mean, a couple decades have passed. And now him and his wife, Sarah, like, wait, like, what in the world is happening? In chapter 13, it tells us that he set up his camp under the oaks of Mamre. And where do we find him now? He's sitting under a tree, under the oaks of Mamre. He's got no land to call his own. Him and Sarah have still been unable to have children. He's just finding a little bit of shade. He's sitting there. I don't know how much time has elapsed since Genesis 17, but if you're here last week, you know that Abraham had to kind of have this like self-imposed little surgical procedure uh, that he did last week. So I don't know like how he's doing, how he's recovering. Is he sitting on a bag of ice watching Mark Marriage Madness? I have no idea, right? But like here is Abraham and he's there and just wondering like, I have to imagine he's wondering like, like what? Like we're like decades in now. Like what in the world is happening here? And yet God, as he does in his grace, appears. It's another conversation, another interaction that Abraham gets to have with the Lord. And when these three visitors show up, all right, we're told here it is the the Lord that God himself has shown up. And there are two angelic messengers with him. And Abraham at first isn't aware of this. He just sees these, these three folks show up. But let us remember this, that God is a God who continually moves toward us, condescends to us, shows up into our world. This is not just something that he did for Abraham. But as we will see, this story helps tell the ultimate story of God's rescue of us, of how God shows up in power in your life and in my life. So the Lord appeared, and there he is sitting there, maybe wondering, maybe contemplating, can God be believed? Can he be trusted? And we don't have time to dive into all the details, but there's kind of three parts of this, right? I mean, you think like there's this preparation of this meal, there's this lunch, there's this laughter, this response of Sarah, and all of it is about the Lord. Like, what is the Lord doing here? And so what appears at first glance, all right, is just Abraham offering the equivalent of like, hey, do you want a granola bar and a bottle of water, all right? That seems to be what he's offering. And then you start to get some of the details. And maybe your note, your translation says about this, this amount of flour, need three sias or measures. And I don't know what that, that means, but Google at least tells me that might be the equivalent of five gallons of flour, all right? So Abraham's all in on the gluten, all right? He's just going, he's preparing this bread. Um, I also think it's maybe... Uh, typical behavior. He's like, he just shows up, Sarah, all right, unannounced. I'm giving you no advance warning. I need you to make just mounds and mounds of bread. All right. Then he goes and finds this young man. He's like, take this calf. I need you to prepare it. Right. Because there's a feast that is getting ready to be thrown. And so Abraham extends this incredible hospitality and they're around a meal. They're around this feast. There's this word that is spoken by the Lord himself. And he begins stating to Abraham, knowing that Sarah is listening in and says, this time next year, I'm gonna show back up and your wife Sarah will actually have a son. There's this promise that is made and yet it tells us that Sarah laughs, right? And perhaps it's fair to surmise that this is a laughter that's rooted in some disbelief. Like, hey, it's been a couple of decades, right? Like, I'm getting ready to turn 90. Like, Lord, like, where have you been my, my whole life? Maybe there's some laughter there about just disbelief. And maybe it's just deflection. Like, have you ever had those moments where you're just like, I don't know if I can allow my heart to get excited about this. 
I've been disappointed one too many times. I got my hopes up and then they were just dashed on the, the realities of sort of the, the rocks of life. And so maybe for her, it's just the, this moment of, I don't know, I'm just gonna laugh it off, a little humor, a little deflection. Maybe she just doesn't want to believe again, but God presses in. God appears. He wants to deliver this message in person and says, no, I still have my, prom- like my plans for you. And Sarah, you will have a son. And all of this is centered on who the Lord is, his nature, his character, his power. And the Lord then poses this question, is anything impossible for the Lord? And as we read that, as we hear that, we are expected to come to the conclusion, no, nothing is impossible for the Lord. The Lord loves to showcase his strength in our moments of weakness. When we feel most powerless, God steps in because he wants it to be clear that we're not to get the glory. This is not what we're coming up with. Abraham and Sarah at this point are not able to just be like, all right, well, yeah, I guess we'll start a family now, all right? Thinking that they've accomplished this on their own. It is going to take an absolute miracle. And what I love here is Sarah, uh, the Lord says, you know, why did Sarah laugh? And and then Sarah's like, she denies it, right? And then the Lord, not to shame her, but just very emphatically, and I think compassionately, he's just like, no, you did laugh. And it's this reminder that God always has the final word. God has the last word, and it's a word that we can trust, and it's a word that reminds us that there's nothing that's impossible for our God. When God says he's going to deliver, God will actually deliver. It was Sunday afternoon. It was June 1st, 1997. Um, There was a particular athletic event that was taking place. It was game one of the NBA Finals, pitting the two teams, the Chicago Bulls versus the Utah Jazz. Game one was being played in Chicago. And as the game was going, Chicago was expected to win this particular series. They were playing at home. They should probably get game one. But with 9.2 seconds to go in game one, the score is tied 82 to 82. And there was a foul that occurred and the best player for the Utah Jazz now is being sent to the free throw line with an opportunity to put his team up two points. Now, if you follow basketball, you might know who this man is. The man is Carl Malone. And if you follow basketball even further, you would probably know, oh, this guy had a particular nickname. If you don't follow basketball and don't care, that's also okay. But his nickname, anyone remember? The mailman, right? The mailman was Carl Malone. I mean, just this large, imposing figure, you know, like biceps bigger than my thighs, right? Like just this guy that's just like, just this massive amount of just strength and power, fantastic basketball player. And he goes to the free throw line. And his name was the mailman because the mailman always what? Delivers. And so that's, he had this reputation. He comes through in the clutch, somebody that you can count on. And there on this Sunday afternoon, June 1st, 1997, with the game on the line, an opportunity to steal game one, he goes to the free throw line. If you were watching that game, one of the things that you would have seen is one of the players from the Chicago Bulls, not Michael Jordan, but Scottie Pippen, fantastic player, walks near Carl Malone. And he's just getting ready to go get set up at the free throw line. Some of you may know this story. You see him lean in and he's whispering something in Carl Malone's ear. Hey, you want to get dinner afterwards? No, it's not that, right? Like, he whispers to Carl Malone and he says these words The mailman doesn't deliver on Sundays. 
in one of the most epic moments of trash talk ever, right? And then Carl Malone went through his routine and shot one, he missed. And then he went through his routine, his free throw routine, and he missed the second shot. And the Bulls grabbed the rebound and they called timeout. And their play, as always was, was everybody get out of the way and give the ball to Michael. And Jordan made his move and he hit the shot at the buzzer and they win game one and go on to win the series. And it goes down to kind of this legendary moment of the mailman doesn't deliver on Sundays. And it's humorous and it's this great part of like just sports lore and all of that. But what we have to see in this text is when the Lord speaks, he is one that his word always comes true, comes true. The Lord always delivers. The God of the universe shows up, condescends to Abraham and to us, shows up in power and strength, makes promises, and they always come true. It doesn't matter what day of the week it is. It doesn't matter what age you are. It doesn't matter your socioeconomic background. It doesn't matter the ways that you've been sinned against or the sin you have done to other people. It doesn't matter the shame you carry, the brokenness, the home you grew up in, the amount of money in your bank account. When the Lord makes a promise, the Lord delivers. It literally doesn't matter. And Abraham is testament to that fact because he's not perfect. He has messed up over and over and over again. And yet the Lord shows up to him says, you're going to have a son. I'm going to make you into a great nation. He's like doubling down on it. The Lord delivers. First Peter writes these words, or Peter writes these words in First Peter chapter 1, 24 to 25. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. God always gets the final word. God always gets the last say. God is the one who communicates and delivers. If God has said it, we can count on it. And this word of the gospel is what is meant to shape your life and my life to remind us of who we are and of the God that shows up in power. It's an invitation to not allow the circumstances of life to dictate how you feel about reality, but rather to say, all right, in the midst of pain and hardship, the Lord is with me, he is near, and he has made a promise that there's literally nothing that can separate me from his love. Not what other people do and not my own sin and mess ups, like literally nothing. And so here ends the first section, all right? Now what I want us to see, I'm gonna read 16 to 33 as we see this next section, God comes seeking participation, that God is doing something. He's forming something in Abraham and there's an invitation not only for him but for us to be a certain kind of person or people, a group of people in the world. But let me read this, we'll pick up in verse 16. It says, the men got up from there and they looked out over Sodom and Abraham was walking with them to see them off. And then the Lord said, like we get this insight, like what's going on in the mind of God? Should I hide what I'm about to do from Abraham? Abraham is to become a great and powerful nation and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will command his children and his house after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. And this is how the Lord will fulfill to Abraham what he promised him. Then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is immense. Their sin is extremely serious. I will go down to see if what they have done justifies the cry that has come up to me. And if not, I will find out. Verse 22. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom, while Abraham remained standing before the Lord. And Abraham stepped forward and said, Will you really sweep away the righteous with the wicked? 
What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away instead of sparing the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people who are in it? You could not possibly do such a thing to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. You could not possibly do that. Won't the judge of the whole earth do what is just? He's calling on the nature and character of God. Verse 26, the Lord said, okay, if I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. And then Abraham answered, since I have ventured to speak to my Lord, like there's a sense of trepidation, even though I am dust and ashes, suppose the 50 righteous lack five. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he replied, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Then he spoke to him again. Well, suppose 40 are found there. And he answered, I will not do it on account of 40. Then he said, let my Lord not be angry and I will speak further. Suppose 30 are found there. And he answered, okay, I will not do it if I find 30 there. Then he said, since I venture to speak to my Lord, suppose 20 are found there. And he replied, I will not destroy it on account of 20. I mean, isn't this fascinating? Like this level of kind of haggling, bartering, right? I mean, like, is he at like some used car lot and he's just trying to figure out, like, I don't know what's going on here. It's like, what in the world? And then he said, let my Lord not be angry and I'll speak one more time. I promise the last thing I'm gonna ask for, suppose 10 are found there. And he answered, I will not destroy it on account of 10. And when the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he departed and Abraham returned to his place. So I think it's fair to ask for a moment, are these just stories just kind of like back to back for no real purpose or reason, no more reason than you've got one email in your inbox followed by another email in your inbox, but they're not part of the same thread and they're just like, no, these are disparate topics. Is that it? Or are these meant to go together? And I believe there's this intentionality. We ask, like, how do these stories fit? Maybe a way to think about it is this, this idea that Abraham believes the promises of God and then participates in the mission of God. Like, God is in the business of forming a particular people for himself. So he's forming Abraham and Sarah to say, will you trust me? Will you believe my promises? Will you believe that my word stands? Don't believe just the circumstances. Will you believe... And then will you participate? Will you be formed into the kind of person that believes God's promises and then participates in the mission of God? That's what's taking place here. And that's what I want to zero in on for a moment. Because one of the things that we've come back to throughout this series is trying to highlight four things, four ways practically of what it looks like to love God. And we do this not to earn the affection of God, the order is so important. The order of these stories is so important. God shows up. God speaks a word. God extends grace. You go and read Ephesians chapter 2, 8 to 10, and you realize it's by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's a gift of God. So you can't even claim, yeah, I got faith. Nope, that's even a gift. And then it tells us to walk in these good works that the Lord prepared ahead of time for us to walk in. And so the natural outflow, a way that we love God is to say, God, thank you for your grace and mercy. And let us be a people as this text pairs together for the first time in the scriptures, a pairing that is found over and over and over again after Genesis 18 is justice and righteousness, mishpah and tzedakah, these two words that we spent some time as a church family even diving into over the past few months. It's so one of the practical outworks. If you want to think about what it looks like to love God, part of it is to seek this justice and righteousness, to do what's right and to help set things right. 
And so that's what we're gonna see here for a moment. As Abraham experiences God's grace, then there's this calling, will he participate? And so for just a few moments here, let's look at some of the particular things. I read this a moment ago. The Lord said, you kind of get this insight into what the Lord's thinking. Should I hide from what I'm about to do? All right, Abraham is to become a great and powerful nation. Like he's gonna form him into this kind of person. All the nations will be blessed through him. I've chosen him will command his children and his house after him to keep the way of the Lord. Like God has these plans for Abraham to be kind, become not only for him, but his kids and his grandkids and his great-grandkids that generations would follow. They would learn to do what is right and just. And this is how the Lord will fulfill to Abraham what he promised. And he says this outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is immense and their sin is extremely serious. So there's this outcry. And when the, the scriptures speak of that, it means there's injustice that's happening. And we'll look at this more in a, in a few weeks as we get into Genesis chapter 19. But it's safe to say that Sodom and Gomorrah, these are places of great injustice. There is a serious sin, serious rebellion that, that's taking place there. And the Lord has heard this word. And it says he's come to investigate, not because God didn't know. It's not like he had to come down here, but it's, it's God's way of communicating to help us to understand what he's doing like in a way we would understand. Oh, I'll go look into this. And it would be very, very clear. The writer Ezekiel would even point out in chapter 16, verse 49. Now, this was the iniquity of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, plenty of food, and comfortable security, but didn't support the poor and needy. That's not the only thing that's happening there. But one of the issues is like them just keeping and hoarding all of their wealth and privilege and the life that they have and using it to bless themselves and nobody else. God's heart is always for the marginalized and for the poor those that are often overlooked. If anyone should see them, it should be God's people. And so there's this outcry. And so he's making plans to go. And I think, as we we know, like what he's gonna see is like, oh yeah, there's grave injustice. But Abraham, what's so fascinating in this this like haggling with God that takes place, he's pleading, he's an advocate on behalf of this city. Think about this for a moment, how profound this is as we look at these words. It says, the men turn from there, they're going towards Sodom. Abraham remained standing before the Lord, end of verse 22, and then look at this, Abraham stepped forward, which is kind of an odd line, right? There's Abraham and here's the Lord. You kind of picture them like right next to each other. And then it says, Abraham stepped forward. It's like, is it, hey, God, I wanna get more in your personal space? Like, hey, dude, back off, right? Like, I don't know what is going on there, But it's more really honestly than that. The language that is being used here by step forward is the idea of a courtroom. And the way a lawyer might approach the judge, the bench, is this idea when it says step forward, that's what we have to picture. And Abraham, all right, is going to plead that the city of Sodom might actually be spared. That somehow his heart is actually breaking for this place of great brokenness and lostness. It's helpful for us to ask ourselves for a moment, are we stepping forward to bring justice and righteousness? Does our heart break over the injustices? Are we so filled with self-righteousness that somehow subconsciously we believe that God should be grateful that we're on his team and look down our noses at everybody else? Or have we been so gripped by the grace of God that we're seeing in the life of Abraham here that we can't help but stop and call on the nature and character of God to say, God, would you spare? Would you be merciful? Might you do this? And so as it continues, he says, 
Will you really sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people? So that's where he, he begins. Will you really sweep it away instead of sparing the place? He's literally asking for mercy and grace, not just for the righteous, but for everybody. And if you're wondering like, oh, is there true wickedness? It's Sodom and Gomorrah, right? I don't think you have to know a lot about the Bible to know like, oh, I think generally some bad things were taking place, right? So like, he's like, will you spare the place for what? For the sake of the 50 righteous people. So for just a moment here, can we stop and ask ourselves, what might God be communicating early on in his scriptures, right? Like if we think about, okay, here's the Bible. We've got all of this to cover. Not, not today, so don't freak out, all right? Um, but um, like there's this entire story and we're just, we're just at the very beginning. We're not even halfway through the book of Genesis, the first book. And here in chapter 18, there's this wickedness and yet there's this man, Abraham, who I think is maybe coming to understand his own wickedness, his own need, and he's knowing that he's been extended the grace of God, and he's responding to that by calling on the nature and character of God, pleading, will you be merciful? But it's not just that. He's actually putting forth something that will point us to Jesus, something that should propel us to just sort of like launch us in to the rest of the story of the Bible. Because if you study the Bible, what you will begin to see is God making a plan to spare the wicked by a righteous one. I mean, that is the principle, in essence, that's being laid out here, that's being introduced all the way back in Genesis 18. Like Abraham asked this, you see it there, will you spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people who are in it? So for their sake, will you actually spare the whole city? And so this launches us into what is the ultimate story of the Bible about God working through the righteous to spare the wicked. But the reality is, is there's not 50 righteous and there's not 45 and there's not 40 or 30 or 20 or 10. There literally are none. There is no one that's righteous. All of us deserve death and separation from God. And then there's one righteous person that is Jesus. And so what we're seeing here already and what we have the the great gift to know to be on the other side of it is like, oh, this is the storyline of the scriptures. I read an old sermon, it was maybe 20 some, this sermon was from like 20 some years ago by Tim Keller on this. And look what he said here. He's, he's kind of summarizing what's taking place in these verses. Abraham is saying, Lord, I'm not looking for salvation for these people in spite of your righteousness. You are a God who values righteousness. So here's what I'm asking. Could you value the righteousness of the few so much that it, uh, that it covers the unrighteousness of the many. Could you spare and forgive the whole city for a righteous remnant inside it? Is my only hope my own record? Or does the righteousness, I love this line, does the righteousness loving God love righteousness so much that the righteousness of someone else could save me? All the lights on our dashboard should be going off signaling, it's the gospel, it's the gospel, it's the gospel. It's the substitutionary work of Jesus Christ, the one who is righteous, who's put in the place of us as the unrighteous, who dies in our place. There's this beautiful substitution that occurs. We've tried to put ourselves in the place of God, and God comes and puts himself in our place. 
Genesis 18, what is so remarkable is when we see that's the story we're part of. And God is inviting. He's encouraging Abraham. Plead, implore, explore this. Join me in this mission. Let's see redemption brought not just to you and your people, but to all the nations. Abraham doesn't even have his son yet. And by God's grace, we're seeing his care and concern that justice would be done. So as we close here, I want us just to reflect and to think about for a moment, okay, if this is what Abraham did, though imperfectly, and we are people like him who've received God's grace, if you're here this morning as a Christian, you've been the beneficiary of God's grace, what does it look like to participate to heed and respond to the call of the God who comes seeking our participation. Not because he needs us. He didn't need Abraham. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. But he has chosen to work in and through us. And what makes this possible is God comes to make provision. So we'll close with these three quick reminders. All right? This story in Genesis 18, the first 15 verses, in many ways, could be summarized as this. There's a promise of a miraculous birth. And then as the passage continues, God, there's this pleading for the saving of wicked people for the sake of the righteous. And so as we think about these things, we think about this storyline and what has already been, been talked about, just be reminded of these things, that God is with us, We have God with us, God for us, and God who works in and through us. So think about this for a moment. It was surprising, certainly, for Isaac to be born to Abraham and Sarah in their old age. But it's far more surprising that an angel would show up and make an announcement to a virgin named Mary and to the man she was betrothed to named Joseph and to say, you're going to give birth to Emmanuel, to God with us. I mean, look at these words in Matthew 1, 23. See, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will call, and they will name him Emmanuel, which is translated, God is with us. So let this story, first and foremost, remind you, God is with us. He's not forgotten about you. He's not indifferent to you. He is with you. But then also this, God for us, God is for us, not just in that his affections are for you, though that is true, and that is pursuit of you, but, but hear it in this way. God is so for you that he sent his son and Jesus himself became sin for us so that in him you and I might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. He made the one who did not know sin. That is Jesus to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We praise God for that reality. And then the God who is in us and works through us, if we're going to be participants in this mission, God's not given up. He hasn't given us to like figure it out all on our own. When Jesus is getting ready to leave, he says, oh, it's going to be good that I leave because I will send the helper. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. It's not just having a conversation with God in the flesh in Jesus, but God will take up residence in your life. The prophet Ezekiel spoke of this. I will place my spirit within you, God says through his servant, and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. 
that God is going to put his spirit within us. And then the verse that precedes in 2 Corinthians 5.20, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ since God is making his appeal through us. We plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. And so friends, as we get ready to close this, let me just ask you to consider, if you've experienced the grace of God, what would it look like to love God by living in such a way that we respond to that grace, to have our hearts broken by just the darkness and the brokenness that is out in the community? To say, Lord, would you send me to embrace the reality that you're not in your job or your neighborhood or your school by accident? And that right now, God is in you and he is working through you for his good purposes and the joy of all people. So I want to ask you as we close, will you participate then with this humility and this boldness? Think about the boldness it took for Abraham to be like, all right, what about for 50? 45, 40, can I get a 30, 35, right? I mean, like this, like, what is he, an auctioneer? Like, what's happening here? And yet, there's also this humility. He says, I'm dust and ashes. Like, he understands the reality of what is true for all of us. The gospel should humble us because it says Jesus had to die for you. There's no other way. We're all lost. There's no righteous. And yet it gives us this boldness for this mission because Jesus was glad to die for you. He wants you part of his family, his team on his mission to bring the father glory and to bring us a deep and just abiding joy as we live out this life. And so will you participate in humility and boldness? This is not the only way, but I'll give us a couple of things to consider before we close in prayer. One of which, in two weeks from now, right, we will celebrate the reality of the empty tomb. As you think about that, who can you be praying for? Who can you invite so that they can hear the good news of the gospel? You don't have to have somebody at a church service to do that, but it's a way that God might work in and through you to be his hands and feet, to bring the... The, the good news of the gospel to invite somebody there. So I would encourage you to do that. And we're going to respond now in just a couple of ways as well. We're going to respond by giving this morning. If you're a guest, don't feel any obligation to give. There's baskets on the side as we respond to what Christ has done for us. And we're also going to engage in this, this meal. We get to participate in this communion meal. So I'll give us some instruction here now. But would you take a moment, let's go before the Lord and pray and ask the Lord to humble us, but to give us a boldness to live the life that he's called us and invite us to live. So let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for your mercy and your grace, your kindness you have lavished on us. We thank you for this story, this ancient story back in Genesis 18 that propels us forward into what we know now as this gospel story. The story that Jesus, that you invite us into. And thank you, God, that you are with us, that you are empowering us to, to be participants in your kingdom work. God, would you use us? Would you be forming us as a people here at Crosspoint, as people that believe and trust your word, that you have the final word, that we would believe that you always deliver, and that we would be glad participants then in the mission that you've invited us into. And so, God, I ask that you would be at work. I pray for our, the friends and neighbors and coworkers, God, that are represented here in the, this room, these people that, that we know, this broader network. And, God, I pray that you would work powerfully in the, next, in the days ahead as we enter into Holy Week. God, next week, I pray, God, that you would be bringing men, women, and children, drawing them to yourself. 
God, we thank you for your grace and mercy in our lives. Thank you that you've called us to be the church. What a privilege it is as we seek to love you, God. I pray you get your glory and that we would experience just a deep joy as we follow you. We pray these things in Christ's name, amen.